Macronutrients. One of the most important things to understand about macronutrients is context. When we're thinking about macronutrients, we have to open up with the premise that nothing is non-essential. And I know that might sound double negative-ish-esque. The thing that we have to elaborate more on, specifically with athletes, is that something like carbohydrates has to be considered essential. Ironically, they're not essential, meaning that we can produce them within the body from other sources, specifically from proteins and fats or gluconeogenic pathways. But the reality of the situation is the reason why they're not essential is because they are essential. Your body absolutely runs off glucose. One of the more important things to really elaborate on with anything macronutrient related is that we have no mechanism for creating proteins within the body without getting it from outside sources. So we need amino acids from the outside world because we can't create amino acids. We can create fatty acids from fat, but we can't essentially create fatty acids, right? Specifically with omega-3s where it's become problematic. The, The thing that's so important that we have to really establish here is that albeit carbohydrates are non-essential, the reality of the situation is if we were, the fact that if they are non-essential, we could create them within the body, shows their value, relatively speaking, to other macronutrients or nutrients in general. So those are the three, carbohydrates, fats, and protein. We talked a lot about this within our nutrient timing module. And not only that, the fact that we need to have a certain amount of macronutrients based off the task, right? So we need a certain amount of carbohydrates for energy. We need a certain amount of protein for building. And we need a certain amount of fat for function. We need to be able to time it. And that timing was all based off our circadian. When is the most light present? Usually dictates when we need the most energy yielding nutrients, specifically from carbohydrates. So what this whole module is going to be about really is breaking down the carbs, fats, and protein into their individual components and then going through really what their value is. One of the more important things that I really want to get across with this though, and this is something that hopefully lays the foundation for principles, is that when we're thinking about adjusting macronutrients the lowest hanging fruit is probably always going to come down to carbohydrates if someone wants to lose weight pretty good way to get insulin control pretty good way to lower calories get some overall impulse control if i wanted to gain weight just invert that right i can get more insulinic foods try to get more calorically dense foods that I can typically overeat. The problem being is it gives this like connotation that that's a very malleable, adjustable thing where we're going off the pretense that people are getting enough protein. We're going off the pretense that people are getting enough fat or they're not, or they're not getting too much fat. There's a lot of caveats to when we're adjusting carbohydrate. I think that's the thing that we, as we start to look at, foundationally for athletes, non-athletes, gen pop, weight loss, weight gain people, is this idea that we are all, from an evolutionary standpoint, omnivorous animals that eat seasonally based off of 
based off of what was available, not necessarily what is convenient. And arbitrarily saying, hey, I'm going to start to try to lose weight, so I'm going to restrict carbohydrates. Or, hey, I'm going to gain weight and I'm going to start to add carbohydrates outside of a particular season. So if it's not as present with light and I'm taking a lot of insulin-rich foods, that's going to have a lot of high energy, high energy yielding inputs, then you might run into some issues. And the same thing being said of trying to time your carbohydrates throughout the day and trying to time them predominantly at night or if we're working out at night, try to get as much carbohydrates at night or getting them early in the morning without a lot of actual light presence. And we start to look at this from the concept of, well, you know, that's, that's going to be a strategy and that's something that could work potentially. But when we start to break down into individual components of monosaccharides, disaccharides and polysaccharides that we start to see some breakdowns happen from a digestion standpoint, from an endocrinology standpoint, from potentially an immune standpoint that we don't want. And I think it just comes down to intuitive, smart eating. And we talk about it with the nutrient timing module that if we have a little bit better platform to communicate what nutrients are and what their function, what their functions are and what their actually constitutes are, then we can have a better overall context as to how to leverage these things. The fact of the matter is we're omnivorous and we're seasonal based from an evolutionary standpoint. And you think about it, think about intuitiveness of this. What is available in the summer months? Higher fructose foods, higher glucose foods, foods with higher monosaccharides, fruits, vegetables, sweeter vegetables, I should say. These things were always present in the summer and when it's really light and really warm. And that's where we need the most energy to procure as much food as possible so we can make it through the winter months where food was a little bit more scarce and foods that were available to us would be a little bit more maybe more rich in protein and fat uh, so more animal proteins maybe some nuts and seeds that we stored or harvested throughout the year and then maybe some fermented foods right and that's another aspect of how we've survived not getting as much sunlight by getting and getting nutrients from food that was something that we had to figure out and that's something that I think as we start to traverse this modern landscape and start to look at really what the natural cadences of the year are and not trying to fight that and trying to be more in tune with that we should in theory have a lot better platform to have a lot healthier people a lot better body comps a lot better everything and that's going to be the foundation for all of this so, just to recap from the opening, carbohydrates are not essential, but that probably means that the opposite is true, that they are essential. The fact that we need to create them from outside sources makes them more of a necessity than we probably let on. Protein and fats are non-essential, I mean essential, meaning that we can't create them from within the body. So we need to procure amino acids and fatty acids from the outside world, and they're extremely important for overall function within the body from rebuilding or from overall function from an enzymatic standpoint, from a cell wall standpoint, etc. The other big part is looking at this from there's no such thing as one being better than the other. They're all related to some overall higher function, but we should think about this from more of an intuitive and 
And from a context-dependent standpoint, that summer months need more energy and winter months need less energy. So we need to utilize higher energy foods, not from an overall caloric standpoint, but from an energy yielding standpoint. And looking at it from how do we get as much ATP from our food, which is the perfect segue to breaking down carbohydrates. So carbohydrates come in three primary forms. Monosaccharides, which is three, which is six carbon molecule. Looking at glucose, fructose, and galactose. Then we have disaccharides, which is a two monosaccharide attached to a glycosidic bond. So you have sucrose, which is one molecule of glucose plus one molecule of fructose. Then you have lactose, which is one molecule of glucose plus one molecule of galactose. And then we have maltose, one molecule of glucose plus one molecule of glucose. So those are the disaccharides. And then we have complex carbohydrates. So these are two or more sugars. You have oligosaccharides, which is three to, three to 10 monosaccharides. So those three glucose, fructose, galactose, or poly, polysaccharides, which would be 10 or more monosaccharides. Again, glucose, fructose, and galactose. So the structure is really important to determine how quickly it's digested, right? And so monosaccharides will break down faster than complex carbs, so oligosaccharides or polysaccharides. So those are the, those are the really big foundations for what's going to be available to us and what's going to be really important during summer months versus winter months. The other note here, which is not listed here because technically it's not a nutrient, but it really is, is, is fiber. And fiber feet meets a, a different connotation when thinking about carbohydrates. So typically associated with complex carbohydrates, more along the lines of starches, so polysaccharides. And what they do is slow down digestion. And what they do is feed bacteria within our large intestines. What they do is give us roughage to improve our overall digestion. And the other part, which you'll see a lot in terms of nutritional labels, is this idea that potentially, just potentially, that they're gonna be listed as a non-caloric yielding food substrate. So you might see something with 100 calories and it's four calories per gram. So if we're thinking about it from the context of, okay, well, if I'm eating 100 calories of a carbohydrate-rich food and it's four calories per gram, so it should be 25 grams of carbohydrates, you might see it listed as like 10. So that means that the rest of those 60 calories are essentially broken down into fiber and it's not really 100 calories anymore. It doesn't change the fact that we're getting in food and we're getting in some sort of substrate that we're going to have to break down and we're going to have to digest and assimilate. I think the key behind when we're looking at fiber is looking at it from the context of it's going to have this connotation of health. It's going to have this connotation of non-calorically yielding carbohydrate. But you have to look at it from the other context of it does have something, some factor of ingestion and breaking down. And if someone's trying to gain weight or lose weight, that has a powerful impact. Think about it from someone who's trying to lose weight. If they have more fiber within their diet and there's not many, not, there's not a calorically yielding output, but they're still getting the effect of eating. They're still getting the effect of, of breaking down that food substrate. 
not only that, they have to chew their food more thoroughly. You can't just swallow something that's very fiber rich. You have to chew it, break it down, and go through the mastication process. And that strengthens your jaw, strengthens the roof of your mouth, strengthens the whole of your digestive tract, improves the actual mass and and density of your feces, which is powerfully important for your large intestine or your colon. Invert that if you wanted to gain weight, probably means that you need to get foods that are quicker breaking down, that you don't have to chew as thoroughly, that you need a little bit more, you need a little bit more calories so you can't be wasting your time with chewing your food or breaking it down or having as much roughage within your, your digestive tract. And that's just something that as we start to think about how to leverage these things, just understanding this just simple function and looking at it from the context of what is what is the foods that's going to move the needle towards changing body comp or changing body mass and then what foods at certain points of the day are going to be primarily most effective so if we're thinking about it from monosaccharides that's going to be a lot more rapid energy yielding as opposed to speak all the way down to complex carbohydrates like polysaccharides or oligosaccharides which are going to typically have more fiber content fiber is going to slow down the process more monosaccharides attached to each other that's going to slow down the process. So for thinking about it from the context of how much or when, you know, we might want to think about the structure as well. Because the structure is going to have a big impact net-wise on rate of breakdown and rate of insulin release and overall digestive function. And that's going to have a huge basis for what's really going to make a big impact. And that's why you see a lot of supplements post-workout-wise that have a collection of monosaccharides. And the more simple that sugar, the faster it breaks down. Potentially, the faster we replenish glycogen, the, the more insulin yielding, so the, the more direct mTOR pathways. So if you're thinking about insulin released from the pancreas, direct correlation to the rate and absorption of of monosaccharides within the digestive system, specifically glucose, going all the way to the muscle cell. Insulin triggers IGF-1. IGF-1 triggers transcription or translation and transcription or transcription and translation. And then translation goes into mTOR pathways and the presence of amino acids within the body is going to start to create new proteins. And those proteins will become either more resilient collagen or elastin around that muscle cell or actually increasing the number of contractile units within that muscle cell. So as we're thinking about this from the context of carbohydrates, it's so easy just to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, if I want to lose weight or get better body comp, I can just do strict carbohydrates. And all of a sudden I have better overall body comp, which is probably less body comp, more body mass. And this is something we see quite a bit with people who lose weight rapidly going to a carbohydrate-based diet. Muscle is primarily water. And when you deplete the muscle of glycogen, you probably get rid of the big water bag associated with it. And one of the things that's so powerful about monosaccharides in general, usually, usually it's going to be associated with more fluid intake, and that's going to store more water within the muscle. When we start to restrict carbohydrates, we start to 
lower water content and we excrete that out through general overall digestion and potentially CO2 uh, through our aspiration. We start to lower overall water content. We might lose a tremendous amount of weight, but we don't really add muscle. We probably actually perceive to be lost muscle, which we probably didn't in a short period. But we, when we do a body composition assessment, we, we typically see a drop in lean muscle mass because the, the density or the thickness of that muscle tissue is lessened because we stripped away the water. On top of it, fat is not as much water. It's usually a hydrophobic cell wall and doesn't necessarily lose water as readily. It's pretty, pretty much going to stay at this homeostatic set point. And we might see a corresponding increase in fat, relatively speaking, to a corresponding loss in muscle just from changing the water content. That's going to be a big part of the proteins, in fact, looking at hydrophobic and hydrophilic, it, is we start to look at the transition of losing weight, gaining weight, and looking at these energy yielding energy stripping molecules and then this other big part of what is the water content that changes a lot the thing about proteins and this is where we'll transition into proteins it's consisted of amino acids which is an organic molecule made of a carbon atom link to an amino acid amino group a carboxyl group and a hydrogen hydrogen atom right what is in water hydrogen h2o proteins are long chains amino acids linked by a peptide bond these these are the reactions of the water molecule joining an amino group to the carboxyl group of another group, amino acid group. What we think about when we think about proteins, we think about animal proteins, we think about maybe a whey protein supplement. But if we look at it from, they're just amino acids with a carboxyl group, with a hydrogen, and that changes the overall polarity, the hydrophobic, hydrophilic component. And they have a different function within the actual body. It's a it's a presence of a charge is what creates this fold in a three-dimensional shape, subsequently formed, dictates the protein's function. And that's important because not all proteins have the same functions within the body. That's why we have different amino acids. Peptides and proteins are the product of amino acids. And when we look at the different amino acids we have, are certain that are charged or hydrophilic, and there's certain that are are hydrophobic or nonpolar. So one of the things to think about when we're thinking about proteins in general is thinking about what is the constitute of the proteins that I'm eating versus what is the constitute of the proteins that I guess I'm not eating and wondering if I do have enough balance within my hydrophobic or hydrophilic my polar, nonpolar, my charged, and, and thinking about it as this concept of how is that impacting overall function of the cell wall? How is that impacting the ability to absorb certain other enzymes to help out with breaking down or building up? How is that impacting overall health and function? Right? And one of the things that's we talked about a long, long time ago was this idea that po that everything has a yin and yang, everything has an up and or down, everything has a, a black to a white, everything has some sort of opposing and opposite function and nothing ever really works in isolation. We always have some sort of 
opposing natural aspect in terms of nutrition. We keep seeing this over and over and over again. And it's not this, it's not this very like loose science. It's very true in a lot of ways, right? Circadian, light and dark. You know, these are natural byproducts of the environments that we live in and function in. So if we're looking at it from why that polarity really matters or lack thereof, it's the overall function dictated by that. The polarity of the protein leads the protein to be either hydrophilic or hydrophobic. Polar molecules are hydrophilic, while nonpolar molecules are hydrophobic. So it's the presence of this which accept, accepts water in or not. And it goes back to this, this looking at it from nonpolar hydrophobic amino acids are typically located in the interior border of the cell wall, and then hydrophilic are located on the exterior border. The location of these charge ends makes powerful management of the cell walls and enzymes throughout the body. Some examples of hydrophilic or, or water-loving in a charged, or charged state would be like arginine, lysine, aspartic acid, glutamic acid. Some polar ones would be glutamine, histidine, serine, threonine, tyrosine, cysteine. And then we can look at hydrophobic. You have stuff like alanine which is nonpolar, isoleucine, leucine, phenylalanine, valine, proline, glycine. And if you're looking at it from the context of essential versus non-essential, so it's another thing to think about here, is there's really not much of a way to say simply that, oh, hey, hydrophilic are essential and hydrophobic are not essential and vice versa, that there's an equal pretty much balance to hydrophilic and hydrophobic amino acids that are considered either essential or not essential. And remember, essential means that the body cannot create it. So there's a certain handful of amino acids that are that are considered essential that we need to take in from the outside world. And something like a hydrophilic would be lysine, that's essential, histidine, that's essential, threonine, which is essential, or even potentially tryptophan or methionine. On the other end, a hydrophobic amino acid would be something along the lines of isoleucine, leucine, phenylalanine, valine, which is all considered a, a branch chain amino acids minus phenylalanine, that these are pretty much equally distributed amongst hydrophobic and hydrophilic. And again, it comes down to balance. It comes down to where you're getting protein sources from. One of the other big parts to think about would be thinking about that structure of that protein really is the product of not only protein, but fat intake. And one of the things about nature, which is so important to understand, it has a very funny way of holding us accountable and keeping us honest, is that all proteins are attached to a fat in nature. All of them. We never get a protein without a fat. Animal proteins, the dairy proteins, they are they are absolute attached to each other. And when we look at the structural units of the body, it's the same thing, right? Cell walls are really just looking at how do we structure fatty, fatty acid molecules with amino acid molecules to control polarity or the gradient with in, in and out of the cell. And what that does is sends certain things in and out. And we look at the, electric, the, the electrical charge of in and out of the cell 
dictates my ability to handle nutrients or handle more other higher energy yielding substrates. So what's a fat? Fat is made up of glycerol and fatty acids. Fatty acids are comprised of hydrocarbon change, chains with a carboxyl group at the end, and that glycerol molecule is made up of three made of three hydroxyl groups. That hydroxyl group interacts with the carboxyl group of the fatty acid. Two types are saturated and unsaturated. Saturated fats are classified such as because they have a utilize a carbon single bond. So if we're thinking about this from a carbon single bond standpoint, from a saturated standpoint, it allows for more hydrogens in one area, hence the name saturated. So saturated really comes down to the amount of hydrogen ions within an area. On the other hand, unsaturated fatty acids utilize a carbon double bond, which just decrease the amount of hydrogen in the area, and that is broken up into monosaturated, monosaturated which has a double bond, and polyunsaturated, which has more than one, more than one double, double bond. There's a term CIS, cis, which denotes the configuration of the double bond, which signifies a kink in the, double, in the chain that prevents fatty acids from packing too tightly together for these, poly, for these unsaturated fatty acids. That makes them liquid at room temperature versus saturated, which has a lot more hydrogen ions in one area, is solid at room temperature. There are essential and non-essential, they are essential, fatty acids, and the key being that they are polyunsaturated and we got to get them from the outside world, which creates this whole other context going into natural versus unnatural food. In a modern world, we typically have a lot of vegetable oil, which is loaded with more omega-6s. Omega-6 is a polyunsaturated fat versus omega-3, which is all a poly polyunsaturated fat. Remember that goes down to decreased amount of hydrogen ions. And, and having more than one double bond. And that idea that this, not a, this essential fatty acid that we need to take it from the outside world is either going to come predominantly from polyunsaturated, which the truth is one's not better than the other. Polyunsaturated gets a bad, or omega-6s get gets a bad rap because they are more inflammatory. And I'm putting that with air quotes. But this idea that inflammatory omega-6s are inherently bad is kind of flawed that we need a balance of such and that we did get omega-6s within our natural diet the other part those omega-3s are anti-inflammatory which is again like in air quotes here this idea that once it's a binary thing the truth of the matter is all polyunsaturated fats which has less hydrogens and has this cis configuration of a double bond it makes it a lot more molecularly weak and more susceptible to oxidation and then oxidation can create high inflammation and free radicals and and creates this problem or down the road so not saying anything other than omega-6s omega-3s need balance but they overall probably need to be taken within moderation because the truth of the matter is is if we're having higher quality saturated fats if we're having higher quality monosaturated fats from nuts seeds avocado and then saturated fats from pasteurized dairy and looking at it from certain animal proteins that we're eating that have a lot of a lot of butyric acid in there and a lot of other a lot of other sub, substances which help in terms of overall function of the body i mean you look at just the quality of something from a pasteurized ghee or a pasteurized uh, butter 
the power of that is critical from absorption of water-soluble and fat-soluble vitamins from overall function of the cell wall, from overall just function of the body, obviously within moderation, but even looking at it from a cholesterol standpoint and thinking about this HDL, LDL, and looking at it from the context of if I have a certain amount of saturated fats, that is going to be perceived as bad. Truth of the matter is, is probably a higher risk factor associated with certain omega-6 polyunsaturated fats. And saturated fats are probably a little overblown, but everything has its point of diminishing returns. And if I eat an abundance of saturated fats without any kind of consideration of polyunsaturated fats, maybe eating fish a couple times a week, supplementing a fish oil, trying to get um, higher quality quality foods in general, that's going to be more balanced with omegas, then we're going to have a little bit better presumption of, of maybe I can get get a little bit more value from the foods that I'm eating. But the reality is, and this is hopefully coming across in absolute screaming off the mic, is that nature has a funny way of holding us accountable. And nature has a funny way of of keeping us to this high standard. And we need to appreciate the fact that if we don't abide by intuitive, smart eating, seasonal eating, foods that are available to us at certain parts of the year throughout the history of humanity... And that is associated with either more more proteins to break down or more fiber to break down or less fiber to break down and more monosaccharides and more energy-yielding foods. And that has a certain out, output for my body to function within. Then I'm going to be in a really good really good spot to make better decisions from an macronutrient standpoint. And I think this is another element to kind of talk about. And we'll talk about this here a little bit. And our practical, we'll actually talk about this whole point of our practicals. Is this notion that when we're thinking about foods that we have to be very deliberate with how much we're eating and how much we're eating of what the truth is we never function like that as a species we haven't and we never will and it is counterintuitive and it is it is extremely daunting to ask anybody to count calories weigh food and i say that from the level of i'm aware that yes it is ideal that we can improve the overall quality of what we're eating and how much we're eating but on the other end, which is really important, is what is sustainable? I'm going to tell you this right off the bat. that is a lot more sustainable for a larger group of people to associate into intuition with what they're eating and realigning that intuition and filtering out stuff that's trivial and really, really unsubstantiated with just smart, logical decisions. If I want to lose weight, increase your fiber intake. If I want to lose weight, decrease. If I want to gain weight, decrease your fiber intake. If I want to have better overall function, have better balance with my proteins. Don't get myopically locked in on two or three proteins. Understand too that fat has an instrumental part in making sure that we have balance with our fat. Balance to the universe is probably the most important thing to consider with everything that we do. And when you abundantly eat one one to three things, that's going to have some problems from an autoimmune standpoint, from a digestive standpoint, but also, too, from a longevity standpoint. We're not going to get great results over a long period of time if we only eat three to four foods. It could be the most blandest foods in the world, and it could be the Spartan that you're just only eating a couple things. And the same thing with overeating versus undereating, that we could fast forever, but that's not going to be productive. Or we 
can overeat and have this binge effect. That's not healthy or productive either. There's always a balancing effect that we can do extremes only so long and having some sort of just overall, let's just be real. Let's play, let's, let's put this down to scorched earth. Let's just make a decision here. That's everyone should agree with. Right. And I think that's the part hopefully we'll get across in our practical section of macronutrients is that intuition is so over underrated and, and quantifying calories and macronutrients is overrated because it doesn't work long term and it's not actually substantiated by anything other than you know personal opinion and there is a law of thermodynamics but the truth is a certain macronutrient distribution you'll see extreme ends of the spectrum from really smart people about hey i need to decrease carbohydrates i need to increase carbohydrates i need to decrease fat i need to increase fat and the truth is that's confusing but i also think that's not really built for longevity and that's not really the strategy that's going to work long term for the majority of the people that we work with out there i think that should be our priority we'll pause here guys let's go ahead let's go through the module because there's a lot of graphics there's a lot of like actual stuff that you need to break down because this one is going to be really dense and uh and i hope this is helping you know i hope this sets for a foundation of a great overall module because this one is one that i think is so in, so critical to making better recommendations to our clients and athletes about what they should be eating and when they should be eating it. All right.